The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 11 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, Peter, how's Sweden looking right now? Uh, well, dark, quite literally, <laughs> since it's it's the time of year when the sun barely peaks over the horizon before going back to wherever the sun goes when it goes away. Uh, but at least we have actually have some snow that doesn't just melt away uh as soon as the daylight hits it. So that's actually kind of nice. Yeah, we had the same thing in Denmark. We had like real actual, do you want to build a snowman level snow, which was cool, but also a bit annoying because uh, due to the lockdown, I I only go to work one day uh, a week and that was today, and that was the first day of snow. So um, I I appreciated it a lot when I was inside, not so much when I was riding my bike to and from work. Yeah, I can imagine uh, that. So um, the book we're taking a look at today is Libella Sanguinis 2, Keepers of the Word, written by Jackie Casada, who sadly passed away from COVID at the end of 2020, uh, as well as Richard Stratton, Cynthia Summers, uh, and developed by Richard E. Dansky. We'll start at the very beginning with the cover, and while it looks nice, I have the exact same problem with this cover as with the cover for Libella Sanguinis 1. I have no idea who's who. Yeah, I, I kind of get the same feeling. I, I would guess that, that the person on the right, the, the brutish man, is probably supposed to be uh, Abruja. Uh, but except for that, the, the two ladies, uh, basically, they, they look very similar. Yeah, um, I kind of wish they'd done something more to really show us who who was who, um, but there you are. When it comes to the internal art, I have to say, I think this is probably the best art of any of the books we've done so far, with each chapter having great pieces that really fit the clan they're talking about. What did you think of the internal art? Yeah, I, I like some of it, but uh, the, I, for, for some reason, I, I find it kind of ironic that when it comes to the uh, example characters, uh, the Toreador has... Well, I wouldn't call them ugly, but like the most boring uh, art, actually, because they're very simplistic and and basically just looks like sketches. Well, not sketches, but they're, but they're very simply done and not very detailed at all. So I, I thought that uh, there was something I found lacking in uh, on this. But, but yeah, I, I agree that the art is very suitable for the... Uh, for the different chapters, uh, even though, uh, like I said, some of it isn't really that exciting, so to speak. No, um, there are some depictions of weapons and armor here, and for the most part, they're pretty damn good. I absolutely love the intro picture to the Brucia chapter, where you have a Greek warrior with a classic Corinthian helmet, yeah. um, a um, an Aspis uh, shield and a spear. 
so that one is just really, really excellent. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, the shield as well with the, uh, the the strappings on the inside that looked uh, very accurate. Uh, I, yeah, it, I, I would want it, to point out the fact that a Greek soldier would wear uh, actual armor and not just running around in in their underwear. But but yeah, it's, no, no, it's he's showing off his physique. Yeah, exactly. come on, he's showing off his gains. Yeah, I know. It's it's the guns <laughs> you have to show off um, the guns. Yeah, uh, page 23 has a very nice spangle helm uh, with a nasal guard and a male coif. It's a bit old school for level 97, but it's quite good looking and, you know, people could easily have, have kept that. Uh, and on page 93, um, there has just a great picture of a guy in eastern armor. You have a Byzantine helmet, you have lamellar armor, and you have an arming sword with an actual fuller, which, yeah. you know, just wonderful uh, as well as period uh, perfect guard and pommel yeah. there are two the, of the... well the, the the grip is a bit long but it, it's kind of a um, long sword grip on a side sword length uh, blade but but yeah overall it's it's very good looking yeah there are two of the sample pictures i have to mention the first is the silent slayer tremere on page 74 now her sword and dagger are okay but what the hell is she wearing uh, it seems yeah. like uh, her armor might be an early medieval uh, male Bernie, so short sleeves and sh uh, stopping at, at the waist, so that could be okay, but then she seems to be wearing no other protection whatsoever, not even a helmet, and she also has on shorts and one thigh-length boots. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> weird. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I even want to call what she's wearing an armor. It's, it's very much a, a very tight t-shirt with... If it is boo if it is armor, it is what is famously or infamously known as boob armor. Uh, uh, very much so. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the way it's drawn, it's I think it's supposed to resemble male, but it's very figure hugging for male. Yeah, exactly. And and what's really weird is that she she's wearing what looks like shorts that could actually just be. Uh, the the brace that were uh, the the underwear that was worn by at least by men and if she's a fighter she would probably want to wear uh, men's clothing uh, but then she if you look at her left foot it looks like she has something on because you can't see her toes so she's wearing the brace over something. Uh, she, she's doing the uh, the um, this, uh, superhero yeah, exactly. thing, wearing the yeah. underwear on the uh, outside. The, the, well, what she is wearing on uh, on her right foot, the, uh, what you call the boot, could actually be um, a hose, a single hose that has been rolled oh, down yeah. a bit. Uh, oh, but, of course, yes. But then that still wouldn't explain why she's wearing uh, that one over the brace, which is what you did. Uh, and and then she still has some kind of boot or something underneath the brace on her other leg. So it's it's just a bit weird. It's a bit peculiar. Yeah. And then there's page 103, the haughty perfectionist Brugia. His description says that he has a broadsword, which <laughs> the less said about that, the better. Yeah. The picture, however, is actually very, very accurate for about, what, late 14th, early 15th century or so? Yeah, I would he say more 15th or 14th. Yeah. yeah, he has a very nice-looking long, uh, long sword, uh, an oak shot type 17, and I think his clothes matches the time period of that sword. What would you say to that? Yeah, it's. I, I would say that it's it's a very uh, Italian fashion. It, it the the picture is is kind of dark, so we don't really know if uh, if he's supposed to wear some kind of pants-like garment, which would make it later, or if it's just to, supposed to be uh, 
some something else but but yeah he he has a very nice style uh but a bit futuristic for for the time <laughs> setting he, yeah he should I mean, also wear I, a hat I like so i'm picture. just gonna throw it in there that that he should also yeah. wear some kind of a hat here yeah, but I, I, I mean, I really, really like the picture because mm. the the sword is is like I said, a very, very good depiction of of uh, 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 a later period longsword. The clothes with the doublet and everything. Uh, he he just he he um, belongs in a in a later period. But other than that, it's really good. Yeah. So um, we have the standard opening with two black pages, a picture, and some text. And once again, I I think it could be put to better use inside the book. Um, yeah, I but... agree with that. It's uh, I don't know. It feels like they they had a thing to kind of put in this deep, uh, or at least quote unquote deep uh, citation in the beginning of trying to like pull from from other literature or religious texts and stuff like that. Uh, and I have no idea what the Exeter book is. I'm guessing it's some kind of religious or philosophical uh, text, but. Again, it's it, it just feels um, uh, a bit uh, what what redundant it maybe. Sorry, redundant maybe. Yeah, it's redundant and and kind of what's it's a p word when you try harder and just to to look uh, cool. pretentious is the word I'm looking. Ah, for. yeah. Um, um, and then we move on to the intro, and that's just one page which give which gives us a quick intro to the book in the same way that the Bella Sanguinis one did you know yeah. it has the same uh, remarks about new traits that you don't need to use them which is nice but otherwise it's just the intro so yeah. <laughs> that's that uh chapter one is about the Toreador now this clan holds a special place in my heart because this is the clan that I have played the longest when I played Transylvania Chronicles for the first time I played a Toreador, so through more than 850 years of game time and several years of um, of real world time, so so I I have a love for the Toreador because of that. Um, anyway, the intro story is well written, but co coming off Libella Sanguinis one, which is about the three political clans, I would have preferred if we didn't get another story about high politics. Mm. I know that the Toreador are somewhat a political clan, they're involved in political games, but I would have preferred an intro story that focused more on the other aspects of the clans. But what did you think? Yeah, I, I agree that it's, uh, it feels a bit too, like you say, political, and, and I would also call it actually a bit pretentious that it's obviously these... Uh, high, uh, high noble born, or well, not necessarily noble born, but these these um, high class Toreadors who are manipula manipulating um, uh, what is it, a La Sombra knight to do the yeah. bidding, and and it's kind of, I don't know, I I got kind of a, a like a '90s high school college feeling, <laughs> with, with you have like the the cool uh, click with with the, uh, the the pretty women that, that are just intriguing on who they're taking to the problem uh, that was kind of the feel i got uh, yeah, now that you mention it yeah there, there is a bit of a um of a, of a high school um hot girls manipulating the popular guys vibe going on yeah and and i don't necessarily think that that the concept of them doing it uh, because there's and i'm going to mention it later the, the thing that the toreador clan does with uh with knights and chivalry I don't necessarily think it's it's a bad thing that they have this idea that they use, but I, I just think that 
the way it is written in this introduction text is uh, yeah it's it's been done like i we've seen it so many times and and even in the well late 90s when this book came out we had all we had seen it already back then yeah uh, so after that, we get a much uh, we get into a few sections that uh, that give you an overview of the clan, including the concepts of patronage, the power of women in the clan, mm. and various other tidbits. It's well written and it gives some good info. I feel. Uh, so, what are your comments on on that uh, starting section there? Yeah, uh, these are the parts that I really like, and and especially like you mentioned the. Uh, the part where where power to the women because and they mention it in the text as well. It's a, it's a clan that is uh, descendant from from a female uh, antediluvian, uh, and and so it makes sense that not only uh, is a large part of the clan uh, female, uh, the the idea that they kind of cultivate um, the the ideal of chivalry that you're supposed if you if you are a proper knight or a proper man. Then you are supposed to protect women, and that's that, that feels like a perfect excuse, um, or or it, it feels like something that a, a clan of intriguing uh, vampires that aren't necessarily bad at martial stuff themselves, but they they have realized that okay, at this time and place in in mortal society, we can't have women running around fighting stuff because that's going to draw unwanted attention. But if we have someone else to do all the dirt work for us, then we can sit back and do the things that we want to do. So, so that's something I, I really enjoyed, and I think it's very well written and, and put out that the, the the reason for it is not just that oh, it's a lot of pretty women fawning over pretty knights. There's there's actually political uh, and and power reasons behind it why they why they actually do it. Yeah, and um, and they they really they show how they play off the um, the medieval stereotype mm. about women, where they are actually exploiting the uh, the the sort of ideal that women are weak and need protection. Uh, obviously, it's a bit uh, it's a bit more uh, problematic in Canaanite society, but they are exploiting it in mortal society, and I like that. Uh, that they have taken what is often seen as the weakness of women and they've turned it into their strength. Yeah, um, exactly. And and the Toreador uh, is a clan that uh, is very much in, in touch with, with mortal society uh, in a way that can be really interesting for, for gameplay reasons. So so I like the fact that they, they take the idea and run with it. Yeah. So then we get a much longer section on the church, uh, which the Toreador of the Dark Ages time period are bound up with, uh, if for no other reason than the church is the chief sponsor of art in the medieval world. It's also mentioned that a lot of Toreador seek an ecstatic religious experience in the Christian church, mm. which I think is a really nice touch, them being these very emotional uh, vampires. So for them, the church is also an emotional thing. They're not just like we've had with other clans, exploiting the church they're actually believers and they they seek the kind of of joyous ecstasy that they see in in others in the church i thought that was a really nice touch that gives the toreador something different from a lot of other clans yeah i exactly and and while i read this i i kind of like if if we translate this into modern nights i'm i'm kind of getting this uh 
this image of a televangelist preacher who is who's like uh, uh, whipping his congregation into to a frenzy. Perhaps oh, that's a very nice and, image. And just to to gain um, uh, to gain hold of them, which which was just something I found kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I like it and and the fact that they actually give them a reason to be connected to the church other than, oh, monasteries is a great place to, to hide yeah, out. Be, be, we get a section on how many Toreadors, <laughs> especially female ones, make their havens and monasteries yeah. and abbeys because of course we do. Yeah. I mean, it's it's we've, we have established on this podcast that in in the the middle ages of of dark ages vampire there are no mortals in monasteries there are ghouls and there are vampires and that's it yeah. uh, however there's some nice historical information about various monastic mm. orders and specific houses that the Toreador influence which i really like that they they instead of just throwing out a blanket monasteries thing they actually get into the various uh, orders uh, and their monastic houses uh, they do make a slight historical mistake in talking about the mendicant orders and specifically specifically mentioning the the carmelites because none of the mendicant orders were formed until the beginning of the 13th century yeah. and the carmelites specifically didn't arrive in western europe until the middle of the 13th century mm-hmm. i actually did some research on the carmelites for a book uh, i was writing and they got their start in the holy land yeah but you know this is really a minor thing in an otherwise really great section yeah and, and i agree with that and i do like that the fact that they mentioned the cistercians uh, which, uh, as as a monastic order, is kind of cool because they were um, they they were quite industrious uh, and and kind of did a whole I wouldn't call it proto-industrialism, but kind of the thing that c- comes before it because there's uh, they they were they were very much artisans. They were they they built things and they constructed things mm. and they they made tools uh, and and stuff. Uh, kind of as a way of living, and and of course to bring in money to their to the monasteries. Uh, but there is, I can't remember if it's probably in France, but they have a huge um, kind of like this combination church monastery uh, factorium almost, because they they have yeah. huge um, forges where they can uh, do blacksmithing, for example, and and it's it's. Um, I would say that it's almost as close to to a modern day factory in the medieval setting that you would come. That like we we do this. This is where you produce this thing. This is where you produce this thing, and and it's it's huge. The the building, the actual building is is huge, and and the well, I'm gonna call it a factory floor in 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 mm. the, uh, lack of a better world, but that's also huge, uh, and and they yeah. have a. Uh, uh, a water-driven uh, hammer. Uh, a trip hammer. Yeah, yeah, that was invented in monasteries. I think trip hammers are really fascinating. Yeah, they, they are really cool. Uh, the place where I used to work during the summers uh, is, um, when I was young, is is an old uh, Valon forge. Uh, so it's yeah. from the it's, it's from the 1600s, but it, they they actually preserved and uh, restored. Um, the the hammer there and it's water driven and and when it when it actually gets going it's really really cool yeah and I think you know uh, um, linking the Toreador to the monasteries not just as a place uh, to have a haven and a power base it makes sense because as you mentioned 
a lot of monasteries were very industrious. People know about monasteries making beer and making wine and possibly making cheese, but they were involved in a lot of things because there was this idea in a lot of monastic orders that hard work was a part yeah. Of the monastic experience that you you had to work when you weren't reading or writing or whatever, and and they had huge land areas, uh, so they they could bring in a lot of materials that they could then work with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of course, and that goes back to the old saying that uh, idle hands may is the devil's playground. So so you would yeah. you would need to uh, occupy all of this people when, when like you said when, when they weren't reading or praying uh, mm. so uh, so after the uh, the church and the monasteries we we end the section of the chapter with a look at Toreador involvement in mortal politics and mortal life in general which i think was really cool especially how you mentioned beforehand that the Toreador really involved themselves with mortals not just as prey or resources but but they really want to involve themselves in mortal lives in, in an attempt to maybe recapture some of what they've lost. It talks about how much the Toreador feel connected to living people and uh, how they prefer to act on the lower end of the political spectrum rather than go straight to the top uh, like the Ventru and, and the La Sombra. Uh, and once again, you know, I think this, this gave a, a good account of the Toreador. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, uh, I, I see a connection to what you said about the, the religious ecstatic is, is that if, if you want to feel alive, you need to be among the living in one way or the other. Uh, yeah. And and I I really like that they kind of give um, they give depth and and variation to uh, to the Toreador. They they're not just a bunch of of art lovers sitting around looking at paintings. Like um, again, with, <coughs> uh, they they talk about their connection to to guilds and and crafts and trades and stuff like that. And I I like um, and it's also a connection to the, to the monasteries. I like that. Um, the Toreador are portrayed not not only as um, people who enjoy art, but they can enjoy all kinds of uh, acts of creation. Like a, a, a carpenter Toreador wouldn't be out of place for me. That would be like it, it does it's it, it, they're, they're not building um, things that would be considered pieces of art, but perhaps the chairs they make are really really comfortable or just looks really cool or, or smell yeah. nice because the wood they make them from it or is really fragrant. Um, I think one thing people need to realize about the Middle Ages as opposed to modern day, in modern day, labor is, is expensive, materials yeah. are cheap. In the Middle Ages, labor is cheap, materials are expensive. Yeah. So once you've got the materials, you started decorating stuff. Yeah. Like they would not have just a simple... Um, uh, a wooden beam in the ceiling. No, no, that would be carved or painted because you had you could pay someone to do that very cheaply. What was expensive was getting the damn beam in. Yeah, exactly. And and we've talked about this in one of the side quests as well. That that you you have this kind of uh, if you sit around if if you're a shepherd for example and you sit around and and just watching your sheep and nothing happens, then you're probably going to take out your knife and, and start whittling at a stick or, or carving something into your uh, into your belt or your knife sheath and stuff like that. So you, so you have mm. kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a culture, but but kind of a thing like we all done when we were in school and listening to the teachers and we were, we were yeah. doodling in our notebooks. 
kind of the same thing, but if you do it on your everyday objects, uh, you're going to have a much more decorated uh, environment to, to live in. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, just, and, and I mentioned it before as well, uh, at least I think so, that I would really love to see a Toreador cook uh, in, mm. during this time, because when, when you actually had these extravagant feasts uh, on, on occasion, usually for nobles or religious uh, celebrations and, and, and or uh, weddings and, and stuff like that, coronations, you would decorate the food uh, and you would do stuff with it. I've, I've read about, uh, I think I mentioned that, that they uh, sewn a, I think it was a fish and, and a rabbit together yeah. and you have the uh, the stuffed and decorated swans and, and things like that, for example. and Pies with birds flying out yeah, of exactly. and, and, and sugar and, uh, sculptures. Gilded pies and gilded food. That, yeah. uh, so so I feel that that would definitely be the right place to yeah. to throw in a Toreador. And again, it gives you the connection to the mortal society as well. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really um, fun. Have you ever seen a TV show called The Wire set in Baltimore in the US? Uh, I haven't really watched it, but I know about it. Yeah, uh, there's a rather fun thing there where you have um, you have uh, a dock workers union and a policeman's union. Uh, both of them are Polish, so they're Catholic, and they get into a fight over who gets to donate a stained glass window to the <laughs> local Catholic church. Oh, okay. And in this chapter, yeah. they actually talk about the guilds donating uh, yeah. or sponsoring stained glass yeah. windows. And I just when I when I read that I. I thought that was so fun because uh, I recently watched season two of The Wire, where that exact thing happened, where it's unions rather than guilds. But yeah, they're, they're, that's the modern equivalent. Yeah. And they're they're trying to donate uh, a stained glass window. So so it was just yeah, that <laughs> that's still going on uh, because that was what guilds did. Uh, noblemen could sponsor uh, towers in the city wall, um, but but guilds they weren't uh, as rich yet, so they they sponsored the um, the stained glass windows instead. Mm. Um, so the next section is all about art in the Middle Ages, and I absolutely loved it. It talks about different kinds of art and stresses the point that in the Middle Ages, art was supposed to be all about the glorification of God uh, before it goes into a philosophical discussion on whether or not Toreador can even glorify God with their art being damned as they are. Yeah. And if not, what purpose does their art have? Uh, so what did you think of this? And especially, there's a little paragraph about clothing fashion that, that I want your opinion on. Uh, can can I get the page for the clothing paragraph? So, uh, Yeah, it's it's on page 20 where it... Uh, oh, let me see if I can find it. There, there's something about... Um, uh, something about, yeah. Uh, so, uh, sometimes, during, uh, sometimes during this era, an anonymous little seamstress has the idea yeah. to cut her mistress's dress with curved armholes and sleeve caps, resulting in a better fit and silhouette. I just thought that was that was kind of a fun little, yeah, uh, yeah, little thing, given that we've talked about clothing. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's I, I noticed that one as well. And uh, and and depending on what they mean, they are either spot on or or a bit um, a bit early actually, because uh, yeah, fit, fitted as a completely different topic, uh, or or almost at least like fitted sleeves that when when you raise your arms above your head you aren't pulling all of the rest of your garment with you are one of the most annoying things to sew <laughs> when when you do it and especially if you go into that uh, if you want to make um gambesons or or other um fabric armor 
to to get mm. one that you can actually move about in is is really really difficult uh yeah. or or at least it's it's a pain in the ass uh so so yeah i i liked it that um because at at around yeah at least starting in in the uh, uh, 1200s you you got these more and more um uh, form fitting uh kind of fashions and and it it really peaked in uh, or at least the first kind of peak is is um, in the middle of the fourth, 14th century when when you have these really really tight um, uh, jupons and and uh, um, uh, doublets and stuff like that and and the tight hose uh, and and everything is is form fitted uh, so so yeah I I like that little detail where where they started uh, getting into that um, and and also in the 1200s you have these um, I guess it's the best translation would be devil's windows. Uh, it's it's uh, for uh, for women. You you have had like an underdress, and then you could have mm. um, uh, a fancier um, o- overdress uh, that didn't have sleeves. So you just had holes to put your arms through. But then of course, if you had the holes really really big, you could kind of peek in and and see the shape of. Uh, of the woman and, and that was kind of frowned upon but just <laughs> like with all fashion uh, the people who wore it probably probably didn't care about the people complaining no um so yeah this is this is really good and this is i believe this is the section where we start hearing more about uh, a concept uh, that is central to the Toriado, which is the courts of love, which mm. I, I I really like that, and I, I want to use that. I've never used that in a game uh, because it's rather Toriador centric, but it um, I want to use it, and it's this idea of of um, chivalry, and they they nail the the authors that they mention. They mention Marie de France, and they mention Chrétien de Troyes. Mm. Uh, Chrétien de Troyes was one of the first Arthurian writers, or one of the first known Arthurian writers. Uh, the best known Arthurian writer, obviously, is Mallory, but he's a lot later than this. And Marie de France was one of the first uh, female writers, and she wrote... Uh, the, I think the closest thing you would come to um, feminist writings of the day. She was still very much a, um, a product of her time. She still believed women should be subservient to men, but she spoke out against the injustices visited upon women by men. And and with this, you had the building of the courts of love where men were supposed to uh, choose, uh, you, obviously they would be nobles, they would be knights, and they would choose a woman who they would admire from afar uh, in the classic uh, Lancelot uh, Guinevere uh, thing, and then they get into this whole idea of, do you then take it to a, um, a physical level, or is it just a, um, uh, a romantic distance relationship? And I think this is a really cool idea. Yeah, I, I think it's a cool idea, but I think it would be very difficult to... Uh, um to actually incorporate in a game without it, at least for me, feeling kind of silly and and again back to the high school drama uh, thing. <laughs> well, uh, but... I've I've actually I've I've played uh, King Arthur Pendragon, the role playing game, mm. where this kind of courtly love obviously is very important, and as long as. Uh, it is considered a central part of the setting as it was there. It didn't come off as silly, but I I see your point that in a vampire game, yeah. it might come off as being yeah. Uh, high school popularity games. Yeah, and, and especially if 
um, if all of them are, uh, or, or as you said, it's it's very Toreador centric. So it probably could work if uh, if all of the player characters are Toreador or at least connected to this court of love. Like you, you would probably need to to have the court as kind of your center focus for uh, this uh, for for the for the game. Uh, to, yeah, to make yeah. it work, otherwise you're just gonna have someone who, I don't know, wants to run out and hunt werewolves or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, we then go on to um, three in-character discussions about uh, things relating to Toreador interest. I'm not the biggest fan of in-character narratives, and I think these were actually a little bit boring. Yeah. The Toreador-founded Knight Knightly Orders are interesting but they're not really given enough space to be probably developed, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and this is also what I think. And if you're saying something, I can't hear you. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, they... Ah, now I can. I think my... Uh, I think there's a loose connection somewhere in my, in my headphones. Oh, okay. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I was just saying that this is what I think is probably the biggest problem with this uh, with this chapter, at least. And and it's, it's that there are a lot of in-character information and, and kind of like letters written to or between characters and they aren't really that good like it's it's again I, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse but it's it feels kind of cliche and, and pretentious but it's it's the feeling I get because the, the information that the actual information that we get from this is like I mentioned, it's it's really cool. You you get information on the, on the order uh, orders and stuff like that. But the way it is presented, you have to wade through all of this text about stuff and and uh, letters and that you just don't really want to read about. And and especially if you want to use it as as a resource for your game, and you need to yeah okay, I'm just gonna open this book and and flip through and and find it. Then you don't want it as hidden, hidden somewhere in in mm. uh, a bunch of fluff text. You you want it like okay, these are the uh, orders and blah blah blah, and these are the their names and stuff like that. So so yeah, again, I I feel like I, I don't mind a bit of in character uh, writing every now and then, but they could have uh, scaled down on it a lot and uh, and and focused like. Okay, this is this is the fiction that we want to present, and this is the actual information that we yeah. want to present, and uh, and and don't mix up the two. Yeah. So uh, before we get into the game-specific elements, we have a description of the Library of Malta, which is a library run by an elder Toreador mm. on the island of Malta, obviously, as well as the classic "What do the Toreador think of others?" Uh, the last one is nothing new. They dislike the Nosferatu. We uh, know that. The bit about the library is quite cool. It's a great story hook, I think, mm-hmm. and the accompanying picture is very accurate for a library in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, except that the the librarian wearing a cloak seems to have some sort of occult medallion on around his neck that would probably fit better in uh, in in another like more fantasy uh, esque <laughs> game. But but yeah, I agree. And and the description, the textual description of the library. I, I really like as well. Uh, and for those of you who have actually been to Malta, uh, if you haven't and you get the chance, go there. Uh, the entire island uh, is uh, is basically just one huge 
rock or it's it's a mountain so so what the people who lived there from ancient times at least pretty much up to the fairly modern days uh, what they did is that they when when you built the house or what they did in general was that uh, do, there aren't really that many trees there uh, so you can't really build houses in that way so so a lot of the um, like the storage areas and and also some of the living areas uh, are carved literally from the face of the rock so you have all of mm. these underground um, shelters some of them were actually used as uh, ammunition storage and bomb shelters during world war ii and and you have the uh, the remnants and ruins from the ancient civilization uh, of Malta is, is still around and you can there, there are these caves or, or they're technically not caves since they're man-made but uh, all, all of these carved caves uh, around yeah. that are they're really really cool so so I, I really enjoyed the description of this library yeah, I, I've never been to Malta. I, I really want to go, but I don't know how my uh, claustrophobia is going to handle all the caves. Uh, but it's a place that I would love to visit just because of the history of it uh, and its connection to uh, to the, the Maltese Knights, yeah. the, the hospitals and all that. Um, we then come to all things game mechanics. Uh, we have a short description of the five main factions in the clan. I'm generally a fan of clan factions, so I like that. Yeah. We also we have two discipline powers and two combo disciplines. And interestingly, one of the discipline powers is an alternate all specs three rather than being a level six plus, which I, I thought was uh, an interesting uh, variation. Uh, are there any of these discipline powers that you want to talk about? Well, not not really. Uh, it's um, they. Uh, I, I like the fact that, as mentioned, that one of the powers is is actually an alternative for for level three of aspects, which mean, means it's it's probably a, a higher chance of it actually showing up in the game. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I really don't have anything to say about. Any of those, I did like the combination power, um, which was uh, the at least the first one, the diplomat's boon. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the the other, the double tongue, uh, I found uh, it's it's probably more situational. So I don't know how useful it would be. Yeah, the the level six plus power Melusine song. Uh, I feel like they're setting up the daughters of Cacophony bloodline with that, mm. um, but I'm 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 not a hundred percent sure. I'm just thinking yeah. maybe they're they're trying to uh, to say that that this bloodline comes from a Toriero, this power. So we finish off the section with a fair amount of merits and flaws. One that I love is the merit touched by God, which reduces the difficulty for creating art. Basically, it's that you have an artistic talent. I think this is very uh, appropriate because there's just some people who have it and and others don't. I mean, I'm absolutely tone deaf and there are people out there who can play any instrument yeah. within 10 minutes of being put before them. So it makes sense that you have a merit to show that you have uh you just have the artistic knack for painting or writing or singing or whatever. Uh do you have any merits of flaws that that stood out? Not not really. Um a lot of them are what you would probably want to talk with your storyteller about about so, oh, yes, so that yes. you can actually use them in in a meaningful way in the game like for example you have a merit where where basically you have a body double uh, a mortal body double uh, should be mentioned uh, and so and, and and that can be really useful or it can just be two points that are wasted if it's if it's not incorporated properly in your game yeah. so so yeah it, 
I, I again, I, I wouldn't. I, I, I probably wouldn't use a lot of them, but like if if I found found one of them and like, okay, this would be really cool in this scenario, I would talk to my storyteller and and see if if it would work for for the particular game. Yeah. And so we end with the requisite uh, sample characters, and I have nothing to say about them. I don't know if you want to further comment on their clothes. At least one of them is wearing a hat. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, again, the the one that is uh, the the first one is is the power behind the throne, who is yeah, uh, kind of self-explanatory, and, and she has uh, a, a, something that I would probably describe as as. 15th century clothing uh she she has the for for some reason when modern people want to to make medieval ish or medieval looking clothes they put a lot of lacing on it so you have you can Mm. see if you go to a renaissance fair for for some reason you can buy shirts that have lacing on their sleeves that serves yeah i have some of those shirts yeah and Uh, the the the, that lacing serves no purpose at all so why would you even put it there and and this it it looks cool it looks quite cool but it's in no way practical yeah exactly it's not practical at all for for a purist it doesn't even look cool because (laughs) uh, it's it's just pointless and and unfortunately this this poor lady um she she has something on that uh the jongleur which does he he does wear a hat uh, but this is one of the examples that I mentioned that I, it feels kind of ironic that uh, that, that the Toreadors, the art-loving Toreadors, have um, an illustration that isn't really that good. It, it looks very sketch-like and unfinished, and he looks more like he should be a bard in a Dungeons and Dragon game. Um, so, so yeah, I, I and really don't have anything to say about the the clothes um, in in general <laughs> no. and, and not really anything um, for yeah. for for the concepts uh, i i do have some uh, kind of like opinions on on toreadors but i don't know should i take it now or should i wait until the conclusion well we can i can just mention the toreador chapter ends with a story of a toreador singer becoming enamored with a fairy mm. and it did that story didn't really do anything yeah. for me did it do anything for you no it's again this is one of the in character um, pages that Kind of again, you you could use this uh, space in uh, in the book for something that is more useful. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you you had some something to say yeah. about the clan tree at all. Yeah, Let's hear it's, it. And and it's kind of um, the, the, what I like. Uh, what, what I like about how they are described in is um, again this this kind of. Uh, well, mortal is obviously the wrong word, but but connect the, their connection to to mortality and yeah. uh, and and the fact that they uh, yeah they, they they try to find ple- pleasure and ecstasy and and beauty in in everything and and it, it actually kind of reminds me uh, with with the gif yankee of Dungeons and Dragons because like uh, like vampires. Uh, they are effectively immortal. So, so what they have is that uh, in in the place where they live, they they need to find some kind of of enjoyment uh, and and kind of distraction because they, they they can't really do anything. So, so they they do really like art and construction and engineering and stuff like that. But they never really finish anything of it because, like, okay, I'm I'm really interested in this right now, so I'm gonna focus all of my energy on becoming the best trumpeter or whatever. 
but then a few years later they get bored of it and they start something else and and i feel that that way uh, that kind of thing would probably uh, be interesting uh, for for toreadors at least for for older toreadors that they <clears throat> they they just don't have one thing that they are really into they have like a million different hobbies because mm. like yeah I, you want to be good at painting yeah I've, I've been painting for the last 20 years and and look at my warehouse full of of paintings <laughs> of people but then i get bored so then for a decade a decade or two i, I started knitting uh, but then i i live in a warm place so i really don't have any use for for all of this knitted stuff so then i i i took up carpentry and but then you have to go be out in the sun so so that's uh, i i like the idea of toreadors being uh well for lack of a better word renaissance uh, men like they, they do a yeah. bit of everything and they they can do a lot of it and and also i think that uh from from kind of um how you would want to play them i'm i'm thinking that toreadors uh are they do really fit the road of humanity but i i feel that they should probably be fairly low on it but but be there on a stable level because they've if you've been around for a couple of hundreds of years and you've seen the the frailty and the short-livedness of, of mortal people then you still probably care about them but it's it's you have a ch- tough time connecting yeah with exactly them. it's it's kind of like with with people and dogs like yeah of, of course you will love your dog but you you realize that you're going to outlive it and and so you mm. you uh, teach yourself not to be become too attached to it, uh, and, yeah. and and I feel that that could probably be how a lot of Toreador, at least the older ones, look at um, at humanity at least and, and human society. Like, oh, this, oh, cute, you're 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 a minstrel and you're really good at it, and and I really love your enthusiasm. But in a hundred years, you're going to be dead, and I'm still going to be around yeah um, they, it, it, when you when you talk about them like that i also get a bit uh vibes like um the eldar from warhammer 40,000. yeah there's actually uh, like they 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 are also functionally immortal and dedicate themselves sometimes to a pursuit single-mindedly and then they throw it away for something else so yeah. i i like your take on them i i want to incorporate that in uh, in Toreador's going forward, I really like oh, that take cool. on them, uh, and and that also kind of brings me to my my last point because, um, like I mentioned, I've I've been uh, doing reenactment for quite some time, and and um, an acquaintance of mine in in the reenactment kind of circuit, he he told me something that I had never thought about, but is it's a really good kind of of way of of looking at things um, when it comes to to. Uh, quality of art basically and and it's like if you look at the kind of uh, of art and um and and music that we as people in the modern society have access to like we we have we literally have access to the best singers the best musicians the best actors mm. uh, because we have tv and internet and recorded music but back before all, all of that and especially if you lived in a society where you didn't travel uh, that much, the 
I, I'm, I'm not going to say that that the average quality is worse, but but you probably don't have uh, too much to compare it to. So, for example, the the guy down at your local pub who who always uh, wants to sing, uh, you never walk alone or whatever, uh, <laughs> and on the karaoke machine, he he's probably you, you do realize that he's probably not the best thing that there is. But if but you, he's the best you got. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's the best you got. So so. I wouldn't say that the standards for for uh, high art were lower back in the Middle Ages, but you just didn't have as much to compare it to. So so you did yeah. the best with what you had. Uh, and again, if we look at it from like, yeah, you're you're a human. You're if you're really lucky, you're going to live sixty or eighty or perhaps a hundred years. But if you're a vampire, you would you would oh. probably get tired of of hearing that same song or the same quality. So. <laughs> So and and that kind of also goes into how how a toreador who focuses on art uh, looks at, um, at 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 least at mortal uh, artists and musicians and and uh, how you can have kind of like a uh, patronage or a patronal um, uh, relationship between a vampire uh, and and a mortal um kind of if you want uh, something to compare it to kind of like how how eric in phantom of the opera is tutoring uh, mm, what's her name yeah. like like you have you christine yeah thank you uh, so so you can have this vampire who, who has found uh, their uh, their, their protege and like okay they're mortal now but maybe in 10 or 15 years they they probably still going to be mortal but they're going to be a lot better at singing so uh, so again, this, that's something uh, that I just wanted to throw out there because uh, when it comes to medieval art, it's it's one of the things that I always keep in the back of um, back of my head. Yeah, really cool thing. Um, from from this uh, discussion of art, we move on to Clan Tremere. The intro story is once again, I think, well written and it nicely displays several sides of the Tremere clan. But where I think it really shines is the fact that the in-character explanation of the clan <coughs> follows straight from the intro story, which I think is a really neat touch. I mean, it's not like uh, it's it's just the same people. No, no, it follows straight on. It is it is what happens right after the intro story. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I think that was that was very well played. Yeah, if if you're going to have um, <coughs> if you're going to have in character uh, narration, basically, this is the way to do it. Uh, because if if nothing else, uh, which really goes well with the kind of uh, technical or or um, what do you call it, academical um, way that that Tremere's uh, acts it's it's very much in line with them because it's basically like okay now i'm going to teach you the the history of everything and we're gonna start from the beginning and we're going to go to the end and if you have any questions wait for it until the end and no you can't go to the bathroom uh, yeah so, exactly so you have um, you you have a lot of of like yeah you you start at the beginning and go to the end there's nothing else yeah, to say about it it's kind of funny with the with the tremere um when I played Ars Magica, the longest running Ars Magica uh, campaign I've played in, I actually played a Tremere, uh, and I have played Tremere's as vampires, but not for as long as I played them as a as a mage. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Uh, the first section of this chapter is, as mentioned, an in-character explanation of the clan, talking both about history and current affairs. It's well written, but it makes the mistake that we have complained about before, where it mixes other game lines. Yeah. It once again talks about Vs, just like the Tzmish chapter in Libella Sanguinis 1. 
Historically, there's not much to add, except that the narrator mentions the universities of Prague and Krakow. Uh, the University of Prague was founded in 1348, mm. the one in Krakow in 1364. However, both cities would have had cathedral schools um, at in 1197. Yeah. Uh, and I remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember where, that Prague was actually considered a city of alchemists, in the Middle Ages, they had an alchemist guild, and and it was the place to go if you wanted to find a good alchemist. Uh, what are your comments uh, on the section? Yeah, I just just mentioning of, of Prague there. You, uh, I I like the connection to Prague because it's uh, like, like you said, it's uh, it has been famous for their the alchemists and and mysticists, and and you have the story of the golem of Prague as well uh, for those familiar with that. So, so, oh, you, yeah. so you have these all of this kind of um, mythical and magical and often kind of like creational stories. Like if, if you want to make something with magic, uh, Prague is probably a good place to, uh, to visit, to, to see what you can find. But, but yeah, I, I agree. It's um, I, I, as a caveat, I'm just going to mention that Tremere is probably one of my least favorite clans uh, because I, I it, they're, they're kind of like with, some of the other clans is, is that I see them more as NPC rather than PC uh, material. Uh, you could probably have them if uh, if all of the <coughs> players play Tremere, because otherwise you will kind of be the odd one out, especially in modern day modern games. Where they... Yeah, I've had the same problem in modern games where a Tremere felt like the outsider because they had more connection to their clan than the Kateri. Mm. Yeah, and, and you have like the um, uh, their um, uh, antagonism with with the Bruja, like they're they're not really friends. So, um, so yeah, it's yeah. It, it doesn't really work that well for me. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't really have anything else to uh, except that you mentioned that uh, universities uh, started popping out a bit later. Yeah. So the next section gives us a quick look at Clan Tremere in 1197. I really like how they say that while the Tremere would prefer to embrace members of, of House Tremere, or at least people with a magical talent, they have a need to bring warriors and diplomats into their ranks, which gives the players a broader range to choose from when creating Tremere characters. So that's a really nice touch so that not everyone has to create uh, a mystic that got em got embraced by, by the Tremere. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I really like the way the clan is portrayed here is that, like, okay, we're, we used to be really powerful mortal magicians. And now all of a sudden we are vampires, but we aren't really that powerful vampires. So... So we need to prepare. We we need to get ready for everything five minutes ago. So like, okay, what what's our plan? And what do we need? Uh, what did we need five minutes ago? And and we need this and that. And we have to build our alliances. And we have to, uh, like you said, get the diplomats and uh, and the warriors to to protect our asses before we I, we can actually gain enough power to uh, to be self reliant. Um, yeah, and if, if you've played House Magica, you know that this was actually the strength of House Tremere. They were the people who had the plans and the contingency plans and were able to quickly adapt if the plans went wrong. So it's it's nice. Uh, we then get a rather long section about the Teliavelic Tremere, which is a pagan bloodline that was formed in Lithuania before Tremere diaporized Saulot and who try their best to keep away from the rest of the 
clan while pursuing their own path rituals and um, agenda. The bloodline is very well written and has some interesting ideas attached to it, and I have absolutely no idea what to do with them <laughs> yeah. if I wasn't running a campaign in Lithuania. Yeah, I, I completely agree with it. It's It, it feels like a very good uh, like plot point or, or story seed. Like if, if you want to throw your uh, your players into the the middle of of this pagan uh, well not wasteland but but this this far far from from the rest of um, of, of Europe and and you want to have them to uh, to to face something that they haven't faced before but but yeah I, I like the fact that uh, they um, uh, I, I like how they are written and I, I like the the reference to uh, the Finnish uh, epic Kalevala, which is kind of the same. Oh yeah, that was mentioned in there. Yeah, and and they also back in the Toriador, they they mentioned Vainamoinen, uh, in the, yeah. uh, which is one of the gods in in the epic Kalevala. So so yeah, that that was kind of nice. Um, but but yeah, I, I completely agree with with the fact that I don't know how to use them. What I did like them. Uh, perhaps we're going to come back to that later when we talk about disciplines, but. There were some really interesting uh, powers that they have that I, I really enjoyed from uh, from a historical and, and storytelling perspective. Yeah, so we'll, we I think that would be a, uh, when we get to that, mm. you can talk a bit more about uh, those. What I really liked is that they when they talk about the fate of the Teljavelic Tremeres, they mention the Polish Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, mm. which is not a thing that most people know that much no. about, but which is actually one of my uh, one of the periods of history that I think is really interesting and and really uh, fun to learn more about. So if uh, if you don't know what the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is, look it up. It is the reason why the Polish Polish national anthem starts with "O Lithuania." Yeah, exactly, uh, and they, they were a local thing. superpower for for quite some time before they, as many other superpowers, were more or less well not destroyed, but they fell to a lot of of infighting and and political intrigue between each other, uh, and uh, a few invasions from um, <clears throat> Sweden and Denmark. Yeah, yeah, let's let's not mention that. It's it's a sin. <laughs> but yeah, that, that um... also didn't help them out too much. No. Uh, Are we then? But, but oh, sorry, to, be, yeah. to be fair, they they did beat the the Swedish king, uh, Carl, Charles the Ninth, Carl the uh in the beginning of the 17th century, uh, which caused him to reform uh, how the Swedes fought, which his son Gustavus Adolphus then had great su- success with during the Thirty Years' War. So you give and you take, and you you get and you receive. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we then move on to one merit and one flaw. Uh, the merit is natural vicissitude, which gives the character vicissitude instead of dominate. I like the idea, but it's five points, and that is a lot. Mm. And interestingly, in later editions of the game, they will have a five-point merit that just gives you an additional discipline so that you have four disciplines. Yeah. I thought that was in this edition of the game, but it's not. Uh, I mean, I think it could be fun to play a Tremere with all specs, vicissitude, and thematology. That's a nice combination, but... It's it's a it's a very thematic merit, yeah. but it's a lot of points to use. Yeah, I I agree, and especially since to uh, to advance in it, you need to be taught either by another Tremere that actually has it, or at Simici, uh, which yeah. probably isn't going to happen. So it's it's kind of like what you mentioned when we talked about the generation background, uh, in in that either you should kind of get it for free and use it as a as a story point. And, or, or a plot hook, uh, or just don't bother with it because, like you mentioned, it's yeah. really expensive. 
So the flaw is third eye, which, well, gives you a third eye because of the salubri blood. It's it's a fun and uh, appropriate flaw. Uh, so to, what do you think about it? Uh, yeah. I, I, I thought it was fun. Yeah, I, I, again, it, it could work in the right set of circumstances. It's you, the third eye, it's supposed to be more of an imprint or, or kind of like remnants of it. So it doesn't open mm. or function or anything. Uh, so, but but yeah, I, I, again, it's it's a flaw that can be easily foiled by wearing a hat. So, uh, but, but yeah, <laughs> see, once again, a reason to wear yeah, a hat. Exactly, but but again, it, I probably wouldn't take it just because I wanted the the freebie points. But if if it works in your game, like if you make it a part of the story, then it could be really useful. Yeah. And then we come on to the thaumaturgical paths and rituals. They have two paths and uh, a bunch of rituals for the Teliavelic Tremeres. Uh, and you wanted to talk about those. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk... Yeah, exactly. And and that is... Uh, they are all very thematic and, and kind of um, tied to uh, the... Kind of like being connected to the land that you live in. And, and it's, it's especially the level 3 power Arbor of Protection, uh, which allows the vampire to seek refuge within the living wood of trees uh, and and it enables him to encase his body within any tree that stands inside his realm of attunement uh, and he can even uh, hide there during the day and uh, mm. and people will uh, won't be able to find him uh, but if you cut the tree down you will be uh, you will be damaged uh, and and I really like this because there are a lot of uh, well, I'm going to say Swedish, but I'm, I'm guessing Scandinavian folklore, where you have this uh, skogsrå, yeah. the, the yeah. forest row, uh, that is kind of, of, of like a tree spirit. They, they can be malevolent and, and they can be uh, beautiful and helpful, but they, they are quite often, uh, or at least in some versions, connected to a tree. So, so if you... Um, if if you meet a naked lady in the forest uh, sitting in a tree, then this is she's she's probably this this kind of forest spirit. And uh, yeah, and her back is often described as having bark. Yeah, or being uh, hollow than skin. Or, or having fur in yeah. different versions of it. Uh, so so I immediately thought of that, uh, and especially since one of the ways of defeating. Uh, or, or getting back because often you you can get entranced by her and she or she will steal your soul or your kids or your cows or basically whatever a lot of different stories hundreds of years mm. of folklore uh, so yeah. but but to get rid of her or, or to defeat her uh, you would cut down the tree uh, so so I like someone knows about this and they included it in the game and I love that person for doing it yeah. Um, the one that isn't for the Telia Village Premier, the the Thamerchi path, is uh, one that I absolutely love. It makes riding and draft animals faster mm. and more enduring, which just makes so much sense in the Middle Ages that they developed a path that made traveling faster and easier because uh, you you don't have uh, railroads, you oftentimes don't even have proper roads unless you have a well-maintained Roman road. So having having a power that increases the speed and stamina of the animals used to um, uh, propel you along, that just makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I find it kind of funny that uh, it's the Tremere that, that has it in their section because 
I thought of the description in in Dracula where where they both um, where Van Helsing and and his gang oh, yeah. are racing uh, with yeah they're racing the sunset yeah exactly and they're, and they're racing against um, uh, Dracula who they're both trying to get to the castle first and yeah. if it might be just from Bram Stoker's uh, the, the Bram Stoker's Dracula the movie where they say it but but they they quite literally describe it as that. The, the mounts and the horses of Dracula's carriage is being empowered by his dark magic or something like that. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. so, so, so it's it makes a very sense cinem- for the Tsimish to have Yeah, it. it's, it's very cinematic and, and it really fits the setting. So, um, but again, considering how um, the, the animosity between uh, the Tsimishi and the Tremere, it's, it's fun that uh, the Tremere stole it, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Uh, we then have a new background in the form of a familiar, though it doesn't help you with your magic. And for me, it seems a very weak background. Uh, you don't get yeah. much for the dots compared to other yeah, things. Yeah, just, just ghoul a cat or whatever, and, and you should <laughs> yeah. probably have something better than it. Uh, we then finish off with their take on other clans and other supernaturals. And once again, I feel there's there's nothing here that we haven't heard before. It's it's what what we always have, the, the Tremere thing. Uh, we have pre-gen- uh, then we have pre-generated characters before finishing off with a nicely disturbing story about a Tremere sensing somewhat something strange in the Chantry of Cirrus. Um, so, your final thoughts here? Yeah, I uh, uh, again, I, I I'm not going to. I'm not sure if I'm uh, if I should say that I was pleasantly surprised by by this chapter because. I'm like I said. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the Tremere, but it, it's a very well written chapter, and especially if you compare it to to Riador chapter. Uh, I was a bit disappointed that there weren't any Tremere's with a cloak of gold and eyes of fire, but that's just because I'm a Uriah Heap fan. Um, <laughs> but but uh, one one thing that we kind of skipped over was um, was uh, the part of uh, of the blood bond as as part of the Tremere creation story mm. so to speak and and what what i like is uh the fact that they they why they put so much emphasis on the blood bond and i think that it's it's a really good it's a really good reason because yeah we if if we turn you into a vampire and bring you into this we're going to need to trust you uh, and the elders are going to need to trust you uh, and so they you actually physically have to be two two step blood bonded to the elders of of the clan, um, and and that started that got me started thinking because uh, I I would love to see like if you do a long running chronicle because this is this is in the beginning of um, of the Tremere as a clan, but I'm thinking that in a few hundred years, wouldn't it be kind of cool if um, if these uh, you you don't actually need to to do it anymore because it's it's become so ingrained in the blood. Of, of all oh, the Tremere, yes. as soon as you uh, are embraced by a Tremere, you you automatically get the blood bond, uh, so so that you don't, uh, if nothing else, just so that you don't get this. No, I'm I'm going to run away before I get blood bonded, um, which which that is a really cool idea. Uh, which which they actually kind of talk about because they mentioned the the rogue Tremere's uh, yeah. that kind of do this, and and I'm very on defense because on on one side i'm thinking that like yeah they should just be killed because and they talk about how hard it would be for for them to hide uh, as uh, because they don't know anything about vampiric society they don't know what what to do and and other 
clans or Simichi or werewolves or whatever, or mortals would probably kill them fairly easily. But at the same time, it would be cool to have just just a very few of these, and they could perhaps be part of what would later become the Anarchs or the Caitiffs or whatever. Like, if you're going to include rogue, rogue Tremere's, make something cool out of them, like use them properly. Uh, yeah. is, is what I would do with them. But but I w- especially would like to see that that the blood bond becomes something that is uh, that that has been literally part of. Tremere blood later on. Oh, that that is a really cool idea. I, I want to run with that at some point. Uh, and then we come to what is probably my favorite clan, the Brucha. Uh, the first character I played in a vampire game was a Brucha, so that alone makes me love them. Uh, and and I it's it's difficult to choose a favorite uh, clan, but if if I had to choose, it would probably be, be the Brucha. Of course, as I mentioned in our Q and A, if we then include the uh, bloodlines, it's the true yeah. Brucha. <laughs> But here we here we go. Um, the intro story involves a sire and child meeting in Iberia, having ended up on different sides of the Reconquista for different reasons. Like the other intro stories, it's well written, and I feel it does justice to the clan. Uh, what did you think? Of yeah, it? I, I agree. It's um, it was one of the better written introductory stories, uh, and I, I again I like the fact, and we're going to go into this that uh, that just as so often before there are. Uh, vampires in general, but in this case, Bruja in particular, that uh, are familiar with each other, but they end up on different sides uh, of a political struggle. Yeah, and they're, they are a lot more honest about it than other clans, uh, especially clans like Ventru and, and La Sombra would be, where, where they, they meet, they disagree, they agree to disagree, and then they go their separate ways and go, well, we might end up having to fight each other, but, you know, I respect that you've chosen this yeah. uh, path that I don't agree with, and you respect that I've chosen this path. Um, the intro story ties into the following in-character explanation of the clan. Uh, not as well as the Tremere yeah. story does, but it still uses some of the same characters. And for once, I think the in-character narrative works really, really well. It's very well written, and, and I feel that uh, the voice that's given to the guy who's explaining it is a really good voice. We get an introduction to the so-called Bruja Ideal, capital I, which is the perfect canine and mortal society that the whole clan supposedly strives towards. Uh, the Bruja history is touched upon, especially Hellas and Carthage, and given the side quests we did uh, last week, I was wondering if you have any comments on, on that. Uh, well, uh, yes and no, and, and uh, like I mentioned in the, in the side quest, that I, I wanted to... Uh, move away a bit from from Greece and and Hellas being uh, strictly Bruja territory, so that I I feel that especially ancient Greece is a place where where you could probably fit uh, most of the clans in one way or another. But but yeah, I I like the fact that they they touch upon it and 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 what I really like is that um, and and it's a it's a running three theme through this entire chapter is that. Uh, the Brujas are very much described as not necessarily a clan in decline, but a, a changing clan. They, they, there are a lot of talk about dying traditions and and how it used to be. So so it, you you can really tell that a lot of the elders are are realizing that okay, the, the way things were before is probably not going to be how it is forever. So what is it that we want to preserve, and what is what is it that is really important? To us as a yeah, and, I've, and it's very ironic that you have these elders that are described as clinging on to 
traditions in a clan that is so intimately connected with change. Yeah. And and there's a whole philosophical idea running through this chapter of is it change for change's sake or uh, I mean should the change come because we know that that the change will lead to something better or is change just something that that should happen because we believe that if things change they will change for the better yeah. i think the the writer has done a really good yeah. job of that they, it's they do a really good job of of portraying the clan as well i i would like to describe him as a bunch of of individualistic idea idealists because you, yeah. you have you have all these clans and it kind of shows the problem uh, like everyone everyone in the clan uh, agrees that ideals and utopias are really good and we should all strive to them towards them but they can never agree on what those ideals should be so so they end up being divided in one way or the other anyways and and their clan weakness yeah. doesn't really help with that so so um, if if I if you allow me since you brought up the the elders from um, from Warhammer 40k I'm, I'm going to mention the space orcs because I, uh, in in <laughs> yeah. uh, in the Warhammer uh, 40k universe, they, they kind of mention that like if if the space orcs would ever unite together, nothing would be able to stand against them, and and they would literally destroy everything and do whatever they want, and and they get the same kind of feel with the Brugia. Like yeah, if if they could just stop squabbling in amongst themselves and agree on something. They would be able to rebuild not only Kothe but the first and the second city in in no time. But they, yeah. they can never figure out what it is that they really want. So they yeah they they will forever be they're divided. sort of a, a yeah they're sort of a clan of of individualists united in their individualism. Yeah, exactly. uh, I also get a, a bit of vibes. Um, uh, like uh, um, what's it called, uh, Life of Brian, oh, yeah, yeah. with all the various uh, yeah. with all the various groups yeah, that they are all fighting against the Romans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the... but none of them can agree on how they are going to be fighting yeah. against the Romans, yeah. and so they get nothing exactly. done. Exactly. We have the People's uh, Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, and and the People's Front of of everything else. And yeah, so, yeah, that's uh, it's a very good uh, description. Actually, I agree with that. Yeah. So we then get into the practices of Clan Brugia, their pursuit of physical and mental betterment, mm. traditionally done in training halls. I think this is immensely well written and it adds a lot of dimensions to a clan that could otherwise be seen as very one-dimensionally. And I like how it ties back to the time of classic Greece, yeah. especially how the Brugia have their own Olympic Games. Yeah. Uh, we get a, a little story about the, um, the Malkavians uh, constantly trying to cause chaos in these Olympic Games, and I can't decide whether I think it's it's silly or it's fun. I, um, I think it's both, but, but yeah, I, I, I like it as well. Uh, go on, and I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we then uh, we end the section with a look at the various regions of Europe where Clan Brugia are engaged in the change of mortal and, and canine society. Uh, now, it could be because I am a Brugia fan, but all of this... I felt was really, really well written and interesting, in my opinion. I'll I'll turn it over to you for further comment, but I just I love this and and I want to play a Brugia yeah, now in yeah, Dark Ages. Exactly. Uh, uh, again, there, there are some things that are, are really well written, and and I just wanted to touch on uh, on the training hall or the concept of of like this is where you bring uh, where a sire brings their child and they act as a mentor to their protege. 
Uh, and and first of all, again, if we want to bring this into a modern night, like obviously you you want to have a, um, a Bruja who runs a gym, uh, like yeah. like Rocky and the the old guy, kind of like that that thing that you you have this place where where people just go to to train and 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 gather around and and do stuff and. Uh, and it also gives because um, again with with the modern kind of thing, uh, you you have this uh, idea that um, that that Bruja uh, are on they they don't really stick around in the same place like they're often portrayed as as bikers or or uh, pirates or perhaps Vikings in in a medieval setting, uh, so mm. so they don't really have um, like a, a fixed base so to speak. Uh, and I think that if if we take the idea of of the training hall and either use it as this is this is the one place the one fixed location that that they actually come back to, uh, and and it's like it's it's not necessarily the, their personal like it's just for one mentor and and one protege, but these uh, the the brujas of of this particular area they they all know that well we can always go to to this place to train. Because we're we're going to meet our friends there, and this is the place where we can go and relax, uh, and and also kind of like um, traveling druja that that are actually living as traveler because they they mention a, a one of the example characters is basically a nomad because that's that's freedom for them that just go wherever they want, but they they still keep this idea of of a training hall within them so that if if they own a ship, then one part of the ship will be the designated place where where you can train and spar and play chess or in, in, engage in philosophical debates. Or that when you set camp for the night, you you kind of like put up a, a small shrine or whatever, just just something symbolizing that this is where you this is my training hall. I I don't have it anymore yeah. because the real one was burnt down by those darn Ventru. But this is the thing that I bring with me. I still bring um, kind of a continuity with me wherever I go. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, go ahead. And one thing that, that is also really, really cool and which is, is one of the reasons why I like Clan Bruges, is uh, the narrator talks about um, why do they not have disciplines that would perhaps be more suited to what they once oh, were, yeah. which were yeah. philosopher kings. Um and and he basically says, well, we don't take shortcuts. Yeah. And I really love that. That is one of the, the things that, you know, I would think uh, would be really cool about playing a Brucia is you, yes, you are devastating in combat. You have both celerity and potence. You're going to be a beast in combat, but you don't have all specs. You don't have dominate. Uh, you are, when it comes to really uh, playing the political game that is at the center of canine society, the Brucia are at a disadvantage with their with their disciplines. Uh, also, I mean, they can influence mortals with presence, but they they lack dominate, yeah. which is a bit a little bit better for direct influence. And that's what what I think is also cool about the Brucia is you are forcing yourself when you're playing one to play without having the disciplines as a crutch other than your presence, yeah. Yeah. which I yeah, yeah I think is a cool that's a thing. really good point, and uh, and I really like it. Uh, it's uh, yeah it's uh, exactly we, we don't take shortcuts if you're going to do it do this do it properly and it, it goes back to train train your body and your mind to it 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but spe- speaking of, sorry for <laughs> sticking around, but it's just uh, again uh, yeah. speaking of ancient Greece and uh, and what I talked about there about the uh, about Nemesis hunting down those with hubris. I there, there's a small section of of um, of uh, uh, about Bruja who who basically hunts down uh, Ventru. Uh, for yeah. uh, for uh, trespassing against them and, and and how this kind of like you you set someone loose it's it's the greatest game and and you're hunting down and either you kill mm. them or you just beat them up and to mock them or or leave them to die in the sun or whatever um, and I I thought that especially since since the picture illustrating this is for some reason some kind of werewolf like creature which is kind of weird uh, but I. Uh, I, I immediately started thinking about the wild hunt that is depicted mm, in, in yes, both Celtic yes. and, and in some ways also in, in Norse mythology that, that you have Odin or some other um, deity basically hunting uh, the celestial stag or whatever. And and so um, if, if we want to go to uh, our neck of the woods and Scandinavian, the Vikings, I would could definitely see this as something that uh, that Viking Bruja would do, or, or Norse Bruja would do, that that they, you you give them at least an honest chance of like, yeah, okay, Bron, if yeah. if you can make it until sunup, we're gonna let you go. But you, if you don't, we expect no mercy, and even if you do, don't ever show your face around here because we're not gonna be as nice the next time. Yeah, what is the name of that um, Discworld book where they do that? Is is it the Fifth Elephant? Well, you have a bunch of werewolves yeah, that's yeah, playing that should that be game. the fifth elephant exactly one yeah. one of the best um, books ever uh, in, in that yeah. uh, and and you have the best uh, the, the the one of the coolest bureaucrats ever where where you have this uh, <laughs> the the assassin who's supposed to be um uh, your a pencil yeah, pusher. He's, no he's um, he's supposed to be uh, like a, a secretary or an assistant uh, to yeah. to Commander Vimes, and he's he's obviously not because he does these things that no secretary is <laughs> is capable of doing. And you have this this scene where where he's being outflanked by um, vampire oh sorry werewolves and uh, and and he survives surprisingly uh, long uh, for for a surprisingly long time. And and it's kind of this. Um, uh, like like the scene in in Jurassic Park where where he realized that he has walked into a trap but he he kind of accepted accepts it and yeah, goes the clever, clever girl, girl. Yeah. good doggy <laughs> uh, but exactly. but yeah it's this exactly the same kind of thing as as with the the hunt in the Bruger section so yeah take it yeah. and run <laughs> yeah um, so uh, we uh, we then have you know the traditional opinions on other clans and once again it's again it's what we're used to they don't like the Ventura and the Sombra. Mm. Uh, we then get some merits and flaws. Are there any of those merits or flaws that you want to highlight? There weren't any really that that, that like caught my eye in in any way. I feel that the very first merit, uh, the the bearing of kings, that gives you uh, minus two difficulty for all roles involving presence. That's a real bargain for just two points. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that as well because I was also thinking, how is this, you know, specific for for the Bruja? I mean, they they try to explain it, but it's still like, could couldn't anyone just have this this special bearing thing going on? Well, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps the the Bruja are just cooler than everyone else. I, <laughs> uh, I certainly think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're one um, of my favorites as well. 
Yeah. We end this section with two new combo disciplines. One which allows the user to make their own steed brave or panic enemies' horses, and one which allows the user to bolster the courage of their allies. There's nothing special here, in my opinion. They're they're fine, you know. Uh, they're they're not something that that I thought. Ooh, that's uh, too powerful, or that's not powerful enough. No, I I like both of them. Uh, as you mentioned, they're they're not too powerful, and they're yeah, they they really they they can be really useful. And and what I like about them is that. They are really cinematic. Like for example, the the first one, Command the Wary Steed. Uh, you, you do need animalism too, which makes sense. But you're going to have to need to uh, step outside of the clan disciplines. But you can uh, just the way it des- describes it that you can uh, cause your enemies' mounts to rear and bolt and mass. Which I'm I'm just imagining this this lone uh, Bruja champion. Uh, protecting his his or her uh, mortals uh, mortal friends and family against like this this bunch of, of mounted knights um, if if you want to take this to Scotland and do some kind of braveheart thing with it go for it but but just like this <laughs> you're not going to get past me and and all of the knights are like yeah let, haha, you're going to stop us you're just a single person and they lower the lances and and the the brute is just going well fuck off and and the the, yeah. the horses all all rear and uh, and bolt and and then he yeah take it take the rest from there like I, I really like it um, though to be fair you don't need a combo power for that you just have to say Frau Blücher mm-hmm. yeah well I <laughs> that's at least if you're at Smichi. Uh, yeah, that is so, uh, and, and the, so. the same goes for the Esprit de Corps uh, which is. Uh, really massive at, at potence five and presence five which basically you um you you inspire uh, from one to all of your allies in your immediate vicinity so so yeah, it's if if you want to have like the encouraging speech where like uh whatever uh theoden at at the charge of the rohirrim or, or whatever just oh yeah just do it go for it it, it works mm. Yeah, so after the pre-generated characters, uh, we have what I think is the best end-of-chapter story we have had mm. so far in the Libella Sanguinis books. It concerns a Bruja who went to the ruins of Carthage and unearthed, unearthed something, and it was just very atmospheric and interesting and gave me some good ideas. Uh, do you have any comments on the last uh, bits here in the chapter? Uh, no, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It was very atmospheric and... and for for one of these in character pieces uh, it, it, i liked it it uh, it was thematic and uh, and and what i consider a good like fluff piece or in character piece is if you want to know what happens next because there there are a yeah. bunch in in role playing books and it's a, it's a it can be very useful like you you just have this little tidbit of something and and for me if i want to know the rest of the story uh, th- that that says to me that this is is really good writing and and this is or if i want to tell the next yeah, part yeah of exactly story. As, as well uh which i think yeah I, I i agree with that but i think it's even better if i want the rest because i'm i figure that the person who wrote this probably has an idea uh if but it, what what happened after or, or where this is leading uh, because if, if of course, I can always make something up, but then it isn't as cool because then it's just me making up That's the true. thing that I want it yeah. to be. Uh, but yeah, I, I really liked it. Mm. 
Okay, so uh, let's take an overall look at the book. When it comes to history, I think it generally did a good job. I mean, obviously, these types of books don't touch too much mm. on real-world history, and other than a few slips that we have mentioned, I really have no complaints about how they portray history, and, and they do get a lot of stuff very spot-on. Uh, do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I'm, I'm just flipping through the page, pages, uh, and, and I found one of these uh, laced sharps on the uh, the wrathful peasant, which oh yeah, also is, oh, God, that is kind of sure. interesting. Speaking of, of just nitpicking, but it it describes him as having a broadsword, but his picture doesn't describe it. So I guess he, he lost it somewhere. Uh, but well, the thing is, like he couldn't have a broadsword at that point because broadswords were invented. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. But but yeah, I, I um, <laughs> overall I um, on on that particular topic of of historicity, I I like it. Uh, another thing I like is um, that, at least for the Bruja, uh, I think we're kind of biased towards them, but uh, but, but <laughs> at least for the Bruja and and some of the uh, Turiador and um, and Tremere uh, example characters are really cool. Like for example, I, I really like um, I, I like the fact that um, that the Bruja has. Uh, like the the delusion, not not only the wrathful peasant who is like, yeah, revolution, revolution, and then you have the dissolutioned rebel who is like, no, fuck it, yeah. I'm I'm done with all that shit. I'm just going to go hiking somewhere. Uh, so yeah. so yeah, o- overall, I I feel that they kind of captured what the different clans should be. Yeah, yeah. As a game resource, I loved it. Obviously, it covered two of my favorite clans, but that can also be a problem because for me, then it sets the bar mm, higher. Yeah. But I felt that with the Triado on the Brucha, they really, uh, they really, you know, cleared the bar. Especially the Brucha. I really think the Brucha chapter just knocked it out of the park. I would say that you know, if if you if you don't find the Brucha interesting, try reading it and see if if it does. And if you have any interest in the Brucha, try reading it and see if it doesn't inspire you to play a Brucha in Dark yeah, Ages. Yeah, and, and I would uh, say the, the same, but for the Tremere, because for me the Tremere has always been kind of meh and boring, but, but reading this book, it gave me a lot more to work with, so to speak. Mm, yeah. Um, so... The next book we're going to be looking at two weeks from now is Jerusalem by Night, which I've I've only just skimmed that once uh, when I was writing Fall of Akha, so it's one I don't know much about, but I do seem to recall some uh, some rather overpowered NPCs. Uh, anyway, do you have any last comments? Well, I, I think there is one thing that that we should kind of discuss at least briefly when we when we yeah. talked about the Bruja and the Toreador, and and that is the the ancient question of whether or not Lestat and Louise from Interview with a Vampire, if they are Toreador or Bruja. Uh, oh, I've seen the movie once. I've never read the oh, books. Okay. I have absolutely okay. no yeah, idea. I, I just I, remember you know, it I'll... being a, a, a topic that popped up every once in a while in the old vampire forums, uh, discussion forums on the internet. Uh, you know what? I'll 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 leave it to you to get a discussion started uh, in the um, on the oh, Facebook yeah. group. That's, that's and if anyone idea. if anyone here have any opinions yes. on that, now's the chance to pop into the uh, to the Facebook group and uh, and talk about yeah. it because uh, uh, I, I I foresee that generating yeah, some that's, discussion. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's move it to the Facebook group and and have everyone participate. <laughs> so yeah, excellent. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well. Um, we uh, we finished so it is goodbye from me Jacob and from me Peter
Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.